Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. Look at the job application and see if it's a role you want to do. See if it's a role that would give you pleasure, give you enjoyment, give you fulfillment. Because if it won't, why are you applying for it? And I know people say, well, because I need money. Yeah, okay, you need money. There's lots of jobs out there that you can get money for doing what you would enjoy. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we're joined by Martin Cunningham, who's a COPSI-based interview specialist who does a lot of work in terms of interview preparation for others and specifically to help people identify their roles and does a lot of work with executive and career and interview coaching specific to you and your needs. Now, we are doing a little bit of a departure from what we normally do in in the Career Guide podcast, which is we're going to go into more about the details about the interview process, because I know many people are interested exactly in how we do interviews and what it's like. And that's why we have Martin on the show today. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Carl. It's It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have been doing competency-based interviews for a while. And when I saw one of your posts on LinkedIn, I thought, well, you know, we've always been interviewing people about their sort of shared experience of working internationally, the lifestyle, what it's like, sort of these personal decisions about, um, you know, working internationally and what it means to leave your country and all these sort of more personal aspects, what the impact on a personal life. But of course, everybody's very interested in getting better at interviews and how can they actually get the job. And so that's why I wanted to have you come in and let's have more of a technical conversation about what it means to have a competency-based interview because it's huge for the international organizations. But first, you have worked internationally for a while yourself. So maybe a bit of background and, and some history from your side, and then we can start getting into that more technical discussion. Okay, sure, yeah, okay. So my background was predominantly policing. Uh, both military and civil. I spent about 10 years in the Royal Military Police, otherwise known as the Red Caps. I've served in Germany, uh, Northern Ireland, then again in Germany on the east-west German border uh, in the height of the Cold War. Saw some great things. So Northern Ireland was before the peace process, um, and then the peace process came in. Served in uh, Helmstedt on the east-west German border. Left there 18 months before the Berlin Wall fell. That taught me about the tipping points and you know how you can everyone adds a little bit of value, which was great. Then I got into civil policing and served uh, for a long period of time in Kent Police in the UK. I uh, was a firearms commander and a public order commander. And then um, 
My son went to work in uh, as a, an EOD search specialist in Afghanistan. I kind of got the feeling that I didn't want him to be there. But um, obviously there were lots of protests about the, the war in Afghanistan, but that wouldn't really achieve anything. And I wondered what I could do to help facilitate bringing the boys and girls home. And on my son's second tour, I was fortunate enough to go to Afghanistan to help set up the Afghan National Police Staff College. And that was my introduction after many years away from being a, a soldier, uh, doing that sort of work, to actually doing some peace process, um, security and justice sector reform. Uh, spent a, just over a year there, came back to Kent Police and decided I'd outgrown that. I wanted to do into, uh, I wanted to give that side of the career enhancement uh, a rest uh, and go into the international arena and went to a place that you know quite well, which is Kosovo, and uh, served many years there, both in the north of Kosovo and at the headquarters level. So I had a really interesting time, and also uh, in late 2020 through to May 21, I went back to Afghanistan as the advisor to the head of police operations there. As for career advice and um, competency-based interviews, Kent Police were a very early adopter of competency-based interviews. And when I went to become a sergeant in the mid-90s, we were using competency-based processes then. And I had some peaks and troughs, some failures and successes. And from that, I decided I needed to study the process. Because if you understand the process, you can understand how to prepare well for it. Now, that doesn't... Some people say... Oh, people preparing well, they're, they're giving false narratives. They're not, because a competency-based process is about assessing your previous performance as a predictor to your future performance. And if you can articulate that well for the panel, then you can get through the process. So I studied this really hard. And throughout my career, people started coming to me for career advice and interview preparation advice. And uh, I've had to sort of reinvent myself a number of times when I was getting promoted, when I was doing other things, when I went to international work. And I learned a lot about how you have to sort of brand yourself for the role that you want, not the role you're in. So that kind of that kind of approach got me into the career advising. And in uh, June 2016, there was a little vote in the UK for what was called Brexit. Many of your listeners may or may not have heard of it. But basically, my career trajectory in the international world was all with the EU. I hadn't done much work with the OSCE, although I'd worked closely with them, or the UN, or NATO. Uh, and I had to kind of reconfigure myself. And lots of people, again, had been coming to me for interview preparation advice. And many of them uh, said, you should do this for a career. I thought, you can't do this as a job. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, I found out you actually can. <laughs> so um, so I started competency-based interviews as a, as a company and then went to Afghanistan. And then when I came back from Afghanistan, started to re-engineer uh, work around competency-based coaching, competency-based interviews, all looking at how you, in an uncertain world, 
how you package up all your skills, all the joys that you have, the, the stuff that you're good at, the stuff that you love doing, package it up into how you would like to live your career. Because we're a long time in these careers. So why shouldn't you do something you enjoy? So that's the premise of how I started doing career preparation advice and competency-based interviews. Oh, very interesting. So as a bit of a primer, so competency-based interviews, like, like you said, which was you know, <coughs> new for me, started very early, like in the UK. Now it's, of course, used quite through many different organizations. It's used quite often and is sort of the standard these days. Um, maybe just real quick, sort of a primer for somebody that's never heard about a competency-based interview. What is it exactly? Why is it important? And why do we, why should we care? Okay. Um, I guess one of the, one of the things I always talk people through is the adult learning cycle and why should you care? Because your CV is an important aspect of getting you to an interview. Understanding the process of the, an interview is not real life, but it is an opportunity for you to market yourself, sell yourself and show what results and achievements you've you've had in previous roles so that the panel can predict the future roles. And another reason you should care is because the panels, especially in the international arena, are made up of people who don't do interviewing as a day job. Now, the HR specialists do, um, but the managers who do the interviewing do it rarely uh, and usually when they're at a really busy period, because there's always a crisis going on. There's, there's always some political or, uh, dilemma. You know, at the moment, we've got uh, everything happening in Ukraine on the border there, and that's impacting on everybody's thought processes around other things and first, second, and third consequences of what might happen there. So lots of people are busy dealing with that. And then they've got to go in and they've got to do an interview. And they've got to try and select the best person. But they're not necessarily the most well-trained interviewers. Some are. Some are really good at it. And some are just doing it as part of their job. So the job of the interviewee is to package up all your results and stuff, identify which ones of those results actually link to the job and the role that they want you to do, and show that you can do it. And offer it on a silver platter and say, this is what I can do for you. This is why I add value to your organization. Now, the competency-based process is all about looking at your previous performance. Most of the questions aren't any different to what the questions used to be before they called it a competency-based interview. It's just they've categorized them through these different competencies so that they can identify the competencies that most need, meet the need for the role, and they can ask the questions relevant to those competencies. And the important thing is, when you get the job description, you can actually identify the vast majority of questions you're likely to get asked. Now, there's a lot of free material out there uh, on the web that says, here's the top 100 questions asked in a competency-based interview. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go through 100 questions. So it's important to understand the process that you can do well. It's like driving a car. When you first get in a car as a kid and your dad and mum drive you around, you go, hmm, that looks easy. I could do that. 
You then get into the car on your first driving lesson and realise you can't do that. And then uh, you pass your driving test. And on the day you pass your driving test, you know exactly what to do, what the assessor is asking of you, and you know exactly how to respond. Now, that's where you need to be when you're doing an interview. Now, when you can drive 500 miles and not remember most of the journey, that's when you're unconsciously skilled. Well, that's also not a place to be when you're an interview. And this is why many people who are really competent and really capable at their jobs fall down at the interview because they don't prepare for the test. The interview is the opportunity to sell yourself to that organization showing that you've had those competencies, you are skilled at this, and you've had these successes, and these successes can be equal, if not better, in this organization. And that's that's why it's important to understand the process, because that way, like learning how to drive a car, is slightly different to learning how to pass the driving test. Articulating why you're good at your job is very different to actually being good at your job. Hmm. Yeah, that makes me think of a couple of things. And I don't think it, I've heard anybody say, you know, consider the people that are on the panel. You you are, and I often repeat it about who's on the panel, but we never say consider the position of the person that's in the panel. When I think of the boards that I've been on and, and chaired and things like that, and you, you actually do just go out and say, hey, can you come sit on this board? You know, it's not like you're really pulling like, these HR professionals, like there's always somebody from HR on the board, but you're not really taking a group of HR professionals. You know, you're just like, you're asking somebody who's next to you or whatever the case is, the next department, because you need somebody who's outside the department, not your department to sit on the board. And so, yeah, that's a, that's like, I think that's a great point because they're not always skilled in, in being able to assess a candidate. And so it just puts the pressure on you to be able to perform accordingly. Now, you mentioned a, a type of, you gave an example of, like, you know, having to go through and, and get a driver's license. How long do you think it takes? Well, I guess let me rephrase that question. There's probably a number of steps that you need to do to prepare. What are, what would you advise that people sort of go through? What steps should they be taking generically to be able to prepare for interviews like this, to prepare for this driver's test, to, um, you know, actually get a, a license for a board and pass a competency-based interview, I guess I should say? Well, the first step is stop applying for hundreds of jobs. You know, okay. uh, stop applying for every job and putting the same CV in. In the corporate world, and I'm not sure what it is in the uh, the averages for the international world because each organisation is different, and depending on when you're whether you're applying for an HQ role or a field post, uh, the numbers are, are different for the applicants. But I know when I worked in a ULEX uh, in uh, Kosovo, the numbers of applicants for each role were tremendous. The average corporate is about 250 applicants per position. And I know that here in uh, Kosovo, the uh, average applicant for a technical job in pro credit is, uh, I think, over 600. The HR, the boss of HR was telling me the other day. And then four or five in ULEX, it was, it was three people per position were interviewed. So if you've got 250 people and you've got between anywhere between three and 10 being interviewed for any particular job, 
that immediately shows that you've got to have a good CV for it to go through. You've got to have a good application and you've got to have good motivation. Well, if you're just putting in for hundreds of jobs, you're not going to be able to show that motivation for that role. It's not going to come across. And if you think about it, another way of thinking, I love sort of bringing in different analogies because people hear me talk about that and they go, yeah, but no, that doesn't make sense because of this. So uh, any listener to your, your podcast that is thinking, no, no, it's not. It's a numbers game. Okay. The next time you're scrolling through posts on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, whatever, what makes you stop? What makes you stop and look at that particular post? When you trawl through 250 posts, why do you stop at two or three out of the 250? Something caught your eye. And it's not the same generic stuff because you don't look at the same generic stuff day in, day in out. These HR professionals are going through hundreds and the generic stuff. And that's why people sometimes don't get replies, you know, because they haven't put the effort in. Um, and the organizations say, I'm sorry, we can only apply to those, reply to those people who are actually being invited for interview. And they put that on the applications. Uh, or on the on the job advert and it's amazing to me how many people say but i didn't hear from that company did it say it on the job advert that they will only contact those who are invited for interview well yeah it did but i expected a letter i'm sorry read the job application look at the job application and see if it's a role you want to do see if it's a role that would give you pleasure give you enjoyment give you fulfillment because if it won't why are you applying for it and I know people say, well, because I need money. Yeah, okay, you need money. There's lots of jobs out there that you can get money for doing what you would enjoy. And if you will enjoy it, so the first thing I would do is look at your likes, your interests, your hobbies, the stuff you really like doing. Look at the stuff you're really qualified to do. Write that down in a column. And then the stuff that you have innate, innate skill sets for, the stuff you're uniquely qualified for, what is it people come to you for before they will go to anyone else? And if you can identify that, then you've already got a list of things you love doing, things you're good at, and the things that you people uniquely come to you for. Well, if you can put a blend of those three together, you're already focusing on a career choice that might fulfill you. Then when it comes to applying for jobs, look for jobs that really pique your interest and spend the time looking at them and looking at what they want you to do. So where it says, you know, um, part of the role requirement is to analyze trends for, uh, of uh, refugees for the purpose of reporting to the IOM chain of command, okay? When have I done anything analytical around those things? Can I show that I've got that skill set? And if I can, where's the evidence for it? Have I got something where I've actually achieved a result like that? And as a result of that, it's informed of the decision-making of my uh, chain of command. If you can do that, that might be a job that if you liked doing that, and if you're good at doing that, that might be a good job for you to apply for because you can show it. And if it's something that you would enjoy doing, if it's something that motivates you, you can put that in your motivation letter. This particular job really piqued my interest because for the last five years, I've been studying towards this 
And this is the natural next step in my career journey. I'm delighted to be applying for this position. You know, really sell it and sell yourself, but be honest. Always be true to your why, your your reason for being. Because if you are, it will come out. I think um, Simon Sinek says people will buy, they won't buy what you do, they will buy why you do it. And people who are assessing you are exactly the same. It will come out in space. Look at me. I'm talking about competency-based interviewing career preparation, and I'm, I'm just delighted. It's just oozing out of me because it's something I love doing and I love informing people on. So I think the first thing is identify the jobs that you think you'll be good at, the jobs you would enjoy doing, and spend the time on that application. And that is the first part of your interview preparation. Then you save the job interview and you save that application that was specific to that job interview. And if you get invited for an interview, you focus on the organisation, what it's about, why it's there, and why it thinks this job is important. Then you look at the role and you think, okay, that's the role, that's what I'll be required to do. And then you look at how can I add value? And then you also look at the questions they're likely to ask you. And you look at the role requirement for that and the roles that are requiring you to do, look at when you've done something similar before. It doesn't have to be the same, but something similar before. And then you can start to show why you've got that skill set, why you would add value to that organization. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the social media aspect, right? Because we do consume just a huge amount of information. And... You know, whether you're on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, I mean, we're just swiping, swiping, swiping until you see something that you find interesting and then you stop. And so I, I think it's it's an interesting, uh, you know, perspective to take on that. And but, uh, you know, I, and I think we've both sort of been in a position before where because I think mostly everybody on the planet has right where you are applying for jobs. And then I, there's this sort of creeping doom that's coming over you as you're starting to apply and you never hear back. And then you apply and you never hear back. And I, I sort of call it the death spiral of job applications, right? Because you you end up sort of devaluing yourself, right? And then you say, well, okay, I, I'm not getting that, so I'll just apply for this and then this and then this. And the more you start applying, it you suddenly become a mismatch for everything else you're applying because you're not focusing your efforts on the things you could get. And so so instead of improving that process, you start widening the the degree of applications you're going for. Then you have this death spiral of applications because then employers see you're not a natural fit. Then they don't contact you anyway. And then you keep lowering your standards, you know, until eventually you're working, you know, at a convenience store or something, you know. But how do we how do we deal with something like that? How, how do we sort of have, you know build a coping mechanisms to have the patience to do exactly what you're talking about in terms of applying for the things that you are finding both interesting and that you want to be working in? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge issue. And that spiral of decline can happen really easy. In fact, it can happen from our early school days. You know, um, a parent, a teacher, an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister says, oh, you can't do that. You can't read very well. So the next time that they're asked to read out loud, I, don't, I had this at school, you know, I had dyslexia and uh, and I didn't like reading aloud because every time I did it, I was laughed at. Um, now, 
you know, I've done well in my career. Uh, you know, I'll be I'm a superintendent or temporary superintendent in charge of a, a force control room with 500 staff uh, for emergency responses. I was a firearms commander, all these sorts of other things. Um, so I've done pretty well despite that. But I had to break out of this thing of, well, you can't, you can't do that. You have to take some uncomfortable action. Um, and it's all about mindset. Tony Robbins, uh, uh, you know, probably one of the most famous lifestyle and career coaches of our time, who recently, uh, last year, I think he had nearly a million people go to a, 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 an internet workshop. He says, success is 80% psychology and 20% skill set. And I think he's right. I've done a lot of work around reading around the neuroscience of performance and stuff. And mindset is really critical. And you've got to have a positive mindset and a positive approach to things. There's been uh, research around some of the uh, high-end top executives uh, around the world who have higher levels of cortisone than average and sorry, testosterone than average and lower levels of cortisone. Those two combined is what lots of senior executives who seem to sort of live a long life tend to have. The people with high levels of testosterone and high levels of cortisone don't fare so well in the longevity of their life because of the heart problems that come along with it. So there's a lot of neuroscience and body makeup stuff, but the mindset is really, really crucial. And maintaining a positive mindset when mostly it's the inner critic, this voice inside you that says, Oh, you'll never get that. Oh, you'll never do this. Oh, you can't do that. That's a very binary voice that we all hear. Uh, we've all heard it from time to time. I've myself and several times have gone, when are they going to catch me out? I'm definitely not qualified for this position. And I'm sure we've all been there to a degree. Um, and uh, men tend to uh, apply for jobs before they're too qualified for it. Women predominantly tend to uh, make sure they're fully fully qualified for the uh, job and and over prepare want perfection before they'll apply for the next one and i'm not talking about everyone but there's, there's, there's studies done on this and that tends to be the way of things but it's all about mindset it's all about having this clarity of vision clarity of purpose and it's not about making big steps towards your goals it's about consistent repeated action and activity towards your goal improving everything by one percent and focusing on your strengths and the stuff that you really love doing and and also celebrating your successes so i had one client um one of my first clients when i, I really started to do this um when i say professionally i, I think i've always had a professional mindset to it but when I actually started charging for it, she was wanting to go into the criminal bar. Now, I hadn't worked with preparing lawyers for things, but one of the things I did do some research on because she wanted this was, was persuasion. It's a really important part of a barrister's role is persuasion. And I noted that she had, when she articulated the law, she did it exceptionally well. But when she was talking about it, she would be like this. And everything was really, really good, except for her presentation online. So we worked on that. We she had other people around her that could work on other things. 
But some of them, some of the people that were advising her were actually undermining her as well with the best intentions, but they weren't celebrating her successes. And it's really important. So she went from the point of never getting past her first interview to getting invited for several second interviews. And she's now got a really significant role. And I won't say what it is because uh, I don't want to identify her here because of the role that she's doing. Um, but she's got a really, really impressive job there in the international world. And I like to think that part of that is because uh, I helped her with her persuasion, but I also know a lot of it was about her mindset, her preparedness, and her innate skill set. She is outstanding at what she does, and she always was, but she just needed to get over this one hurdle and celebrate it and go on and achieve further successes. So don't dwell on your failures. Your failures are in the past. They're behind you. Celebrate your successes. Get that positive mindset going and take that that spiral of decline and turn it into a virtuous cycle. Because if you, you can build on your successes. You can definitely build on your successes. And even if they're small successes, celebrate them. If it's as much as, um, I think it's Mel Robbins wrote the book on high five and uh, five steps, etc. She says, the first thing you do is you get out of bed. You go five, four, three, two, one, get out of bed. Go to the mirror and high five yourself and celebrate the fact that you've got out of bed. <laughs> she, so she's got some skill sets around, around that um, uh, and some, some ideas around that. And there's lots of, uh, lots of, Great uh, books. I, I never believed in any of this stuff. When I was a policeman, I just thought, oh, you just get on with your job. Full of testosterone, working it with tactical firearms, public order, dogs, fast cars, guns, you know, all that. So I didn't go into the, the this mindset thing, apart from I did have a positive mindset. I was very, but it was kind of very focused on get fit, do this, do that. Uh, and I definitely wasn't the fittest, but it was get out and do it, you know. Now, now that I've actually looked at the neuroscience behind all of this, I get it. Your mind and your body are connected. And some of the stuff that you can do is very, very simple. It's kind of just increasing your blood flow, pulling your shoulders back and doing, doing things like that. Short bursts of exercise just before you go into an interview, for example. Just increase your, your presence. Instead of dwelling on it, whenever we dwell on our, our failures, we start looking like this, we start doing this, and we become part of the spiral of decline. Whereas if you just kind of do this 25 times and do a fast sprint for about two or three minutes, you suddenly start increasing your, your blood flow, you increase that, and, and for some reason, you just sit up better. And, and as soon as you do, if you do that, just before you go to write something about why you want that job, then you might actually sort of think and think emotionally as well. What will that job mean to you? If you could, if you could get that job, how would your life change? Why would it be good for you? Think about all those positive things and suddenly your mindset starts to shift and you only need a 1% shift in your mindset. You only need a 1% shift in the way you sort of hold yourself. And then incrementally, do another 1% the next day and another 1%. And every time you have a success, celebrate it. If you get invited for a second interview, celebrate it. It's an achievement. 
getting called for an interview is an achievement. 250 people apply. You're one of the people, one of the few that get an interview. Celebrate that. It's excellent. And then treat it as another opportunity to practice your interview technique. But make sure you apply for the jobs you really want and put all of your work into specifically applying for that and then have a model for answering the question. I'm glad you said that because we can sort of turn to that portion of the competency-based interview, which is really about answering the questions, right? And so there's okay. there's quite a few, you know, well, really not quite a few, but there's there's a few, well, a couple of examples out there that people can use to answer these questions. And so, of course, with, with the idea that competency-based interviews are always sort of open-ended questions and provide you the, the space and the time to explain your experience, how should people be framing their answers for some of these questions? Well, bear in mind, you, you don't really have many questions in an interview because of the time. So if it's half an hour to an hour, you have somewhere between five, eight, ten questions maximum. You already know that they're going to ask you to introduce yourself. So there's your first answer that you need to prepare for. Some companies ask you to tell you tell the motivation, but I'd actually put that in my introduction. And my introduction is three minutes, not two, and it's not five. Between three and four, but I try and get it to three. Because three, you can be succinct, but give them enough. When you get to five, it's boring. And people are switching off. I mean, you and I have been there when people are, then you're trying to say, yeah, okay, can we move, can, can we move, can, can? there's the other point just whilst I'm on that, if somebody on the interview panel is interrupting you, shut up. <laughs> Close your mouth and listen. Because they're trying to tell you something. Either you're on the wrong path or you've already answered the question and they want to move you on to the next one because you still, you've only got a finite period of time and they want to get as much from you as possible. So if the interviewer says anything, shut up, listen, assess the information they've given you, and then respond. And sometimes your response is just wait for the next question. So there's a number of different models as well when you're answering questions. And some people will ask you a hypothetical question. Don't fall into that trap. It's your interview as much as it is theirs. You're finding out about the company or the organization, and they're finding out about you. If they're asking you a hypothetical question, it's because the interviewer is a busy person, doesn't really understand competency-based interviews, and has asked you a question that's going to elicit uh, an answer like, well, the process I would follow would be, and I would look at this, and I would look at that. Well, that doesn't give me anything about your previous experience as a predictor to your future experience. So the first lesson is make sure you turn any of those into a reality. Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I've actually got an example of when I've done that. The situation was, and you see I'm already going into a model. Um, and the reason you do that is anybody, if anybody asks you a follow-up question, you can talk about an incident you've actually dealt with and one that, sh should you have actually prepared well for the interview, you know all the pitfalls and everything else about that particular answer. The... Um, the various models, I mean, you've got CAR, which is circumstance action uh, result. 
you've got star, situation, task, action, result. I've added L to star, which is learning. Because and my, my clients are saying that really leveled my performance up because what you do is you take the learning and show how that's relevant to the role you've applied for. So it really loops it round and finishes it off nicely. Now, as an assessor, I always asked what the learning was from experience, your, your experience. So give us an example of a mistake you've made. Most people talk about, oh, I didn't dot an I, I didn't cross a T, um, or I don't make mistakes. Fatal error. But when they answer it well, you can actually say, well, what was the learning from that? Now, if you're if you're an interviewee and you already say, well, this was a situation, this is why it was important. So this is the task I gave myself. This is the task I was given. This is the task the team had. And that's where you can talk about the team. The actions I took, this is where you talk about how you contributed to the result. It's not about the team. If you worked with the team, you can say, I coordinated closely with the team so that I made sure I didn't make any, uh, didn't carry out any actions or activities that would undermine the work they were doing and would be additional to that. When you look at the result, I'm really proud that I was able to contribute to this. And then the learning. And the learning I got from this, the learning the team got from this, we were able to promulgate that around the rest of the organization, which was really important. Yeah, those sorts of things, and then but link it to the job you're going to be applying for. And that that that's why I think I, I would bring that learning into this role. It can be as simple as that. There's also the bluff model, uh, which is bottom line up front. So if somebody asks you for a direct opinion, you could just say, yes, I agree with that. And here's the reason. And then you give them the reason why. And then at the at the back end of it, you follow up with, so that's why I agree with that. So you've said it at the top, you've said it at the bottom, but in the middle, you've given them a rationale. And that way, they don't so that they can't say at the end of it, well, he didn't really give us his opinion, or she didn't give us her, her opinion. They've got it at the front, bottom line up front, and then at the bottom. And with uh, persuasion, <laughs> um, a barrister friend of mine said, say it once, say it well, sit down. So that was his his approach to it. Say it once, say it well, sit down. So for the for for those sitting at an interview or like this, say it once, say it well, shut up. But that's more for the barristers. <laughs> yeah, I I think that that's also true. I mean, I was just on a on a board a, a week or so ago, and and it's it's really true. Like people need to learn to just be quiet. I mean, you have to sort of. Uh, well, a couple of things you have to, as you mentioned, get through your answer, be able to articulate it, quantify it, and then you to sort of stop talking about it, but then also be comfortable with the silence that follows, right? We have a, a natural tendency to want to just fill the gap. And because if it's more than three seconds of silence, then we're like, then we continue or then we say something else. And honestly, just being quiet is, is probably the next thing because people know then there's a cue that you need to go on to the next question. And, and it's funny that you said about interrupting because that is true. Like, you, you know, when you try to interrupt something, you're like, excuse me, but wait, you know, and you're like, okay, that was enough. Thanks. You know, <laughs> but people continue to go on and on and because, and I understand rightly so, right? So, so they're nervous. They're, you know, not sure of what to say. Maybe they're not sure in their answer and they continue to drone on. And you, you do really have a finite amount of time during an interview. I mean, generally speaking, no more than, 
rarely more than one hour, right? And so if you have to get through, yeah, I mean, that's only eight candidates a day. And if you have to interview 20 or 30 candidates, I mean, it's taking up your whole week, you know? And so you do want to get through, and they're generally maybe 30 to 40 minutes per interview. Uh, and so it, it's about time management as well. And so being able to have your answers concisely packaged and and to be able to have the board say, okay, well, that was good. That's enough. you know. And, and that's really, I think, an important part. But learning to, to be quiet and learning to listen and learning to, to be comfortable in the silence, I think, is a, is a good skill to develop. I think that comes back to one of your earlier questions as well, is, is you do have a finite amount of time. And, and uh, how do you make sure, how long does it take for you to be able to do this well? And I've found that with the majority of people uh, that I've coached, it takes about eight hours of actual practice, not just the writing down of the questions, but one-to-one practice. And the reason for that is it's, a, it's about mastery. It's about mastering your approach mastering the way you come across on a video. Have you got the right lighting? Have you made sure that you've got alternative forms of Wi-Fi or other connections that you can use? Is there a place around the corner you can bug out to if there's a if there's a power cut? All of us who work internationally have been in places where we've had power cuts, unstable internet access. It's, it's a real thing that happens all the time. If you miss out on that interview, you miss out. So take the opportunity to prepare all of that. Take the opportunity to make sure that your camera is at eye height, that you've got sufficient of your body showing, because if you're sat like this, you know, they don't really see very much. And learn how to use the camera effectively. Look at the look into the camera because you're looking into their eyes, but then look away from the camera as well so you're not staring at them. You know, all of these sorts of things are really important. And understand the equipment you've got. You know, some of the most modern iPads and iPhones follow you around a little bit. You know, the camera moves with you. Make sure you understand how your equipment works and what you need to do to come across as a a human being. And then practice. Practice, review, practice, review, practice, get it right. And look at the Kaizen model of it. Small but precise improvements. Focus on one area of it. Maybe look at the... um, Record it. So Zoom is a great, a great model for this. You don't have to pay any money for it. You can start a meeting, don't interview, don't invite anybody, press record, and it will record how you've come across. And then you can look through that. The first time you look through it, listen to it, but don't look at it. The second time you do it, look at it, but with the volume off. And the third time you do it, look at it all the way through. And that will show you a number of things. It will show you what you're saying when you're going, um, uh, um, uh. It will also show you when you're doing it really well. It will show whether or you, what your body language is like and whether or not your eye contact is good. Uh, it will show you whether or not the lighting's good. Uh, and it will show you whether or not you're doing this too much. And also, the third one will show whether or not your words are matching what your body's saying. Because that is a big indicator as to whether or not anybody's going to like and trust you. And that's the biggest impact factor when you're looking at first impressions. And if you want me to, I could come on to, because I think this moves neatly on to first impressions. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So first impressions, and this is, again, some of the neuroscience that we're beginning, we're actually beginning to have a real good understanding of how our brain works. And uh, the first thing we do when we look at somebody or something or someone new is likability. And likability is an instantaneous look. This is why on one of my videos I talk about takes 10 seconds to make a bad impression. It takes 30 seconds to make a good one. It's it's a little bit sometimes different to that. The main thing is your likability factor is a quick one that people make an instant like or dislike. And then they look at your credibility, and that takes longer, takes over a period of time. So your likability factor, whether or not you smile and whether or not you come across as congenial, whether or not you say, oh, hi, it's really nice to meet you, and you spend the time to build a little bit of rapport, because they're going to want to build rapport with you. You've got to take that time, settle into the interview, and build the rapport. That's your likability, and the credibility comes. Now, the likability, because it's a quick snapshot decision, it's an easy one to lose quickly as well. Mistrust can come in very quickly when somebody has slighted you. You think you can have a friendship for 20 years, they betray you, and that trust never comes back. You could trust somebody, and they can be competent for a number of things, and then they can make successive mistake after mistake after mistake, and you constantly give them the the judgment of, it's okay, um, they'll, they'll, they'll get through it, it's fine. It, it's not like them to make this mistake. They have to make several mistakes before you question their credibility. So I think the important thing on that is to make sure that you come across nice and likable through your interview. You also look at your credibility. And the reason we think like that is because our, our brains haven't really developed for 130,000 years. We look at things, do we like it? If we like it, are they capable? If they're capable and competent, they can help us. They can help us farm, they can help us hunt, they can help us do whatever. If we don't like them and they're capable, then they're a threat and we need to be careful. So, And our brains haven't moved too far from that. So if you understand that, you understand that the likability is really important. That's why I always advise people to follow up with a nice email after the interview saying, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciated it and the attitude of the panel. It was wonderful. Because if they're deciding between you and someone else and it's hair thin between which one they're going to employ, that thank you email, likability factor with with the capability factor could actually knock you over the edge. It doesn't always. But it could. The other thing is, if you're successful in the job, it's one of the first things they'll remember. Oh, I remember you sent that nice little email. Or if they live, if they're close by and in postal range, write it by hand. And the reason you write it by hand is nobody writes a letter anymore, so it's different. And if they receive that, oh, how nice is that? <laughs> They've actually taken the time. Uh, so all those little things really help. So likability factor is important. Credibility and competence is important, but always maintain that likability and trust because that's the one thing that could really undermine you and undermine you for good. I think that's a good point. That makes me sort of reflect upon, you know, the boards I've sat on. And to be honest, when you are getting 20 interviews deep, 
into, you know, a board. It's it's very hard to remember the first candidate, you know, and it, it is in what distinguishes them from anybody else. And I, I think that we have to work hard in terms of why are you a different candidate than everybody else? And to, to bring out these these factors, to be likable, to just to distinguish yourself in such a way that you're rememberable, right? So that when the board has to assess everything after, you know, 15, 20 candidates, that they still remember who you are. Because it does, it, it honestly, it blends together after a while. Yeah, same yeah. eight questions, same sort of eight answers, unless somebody has an amazing example. And it's just repetitive patterns for days for the board. You, you always remember the first candidate, the last candidate, and the interesting stories. True. Yeah, that's what you remember. Now, okay, if if your if your HR department is good and they give you the time between each candidate, you can write the things down. But you're still under a lot of pressure to write down within a specific time. You have a conversation with the panel. You write down the best you can, and you score them as best you can in the time that you've got. We're all human. Uh, mm-hmm. We all retain a certain amount of information. That's why I say it's. Yes, it's the interview panel's job to make it as open, transparent, and fair and accommodating as we possibly can. But it's also the candidate's responsibility to sell themselves. Some people don't like the term salesperson, but they need to show how they add value. There are two two things in the interview process, as far as I'm concerned. They're the product and they're the salesperson. And the only person who can sell that product is them. And those who are modest, that's a big mistake. Don't be modest in an interview. And the amount of clients I've had, the amount of people I've I've heard sort of come to me and go, yeah, well, so I'll take ULEX as an example. Yeah, well, I've worked for the OSCE, I've worked for the UN, and I've worked for ULEX for eight years. Yeah, okay, but tell us why you should have this job. Well, because I've worked for you a long time. I've worked with internationals a lot. Yet so is everyone else who's applied for this job. Tell us how you add value. And and the trouble is they say, well, well, I've worked here. You know me. Yes, I do. But it's an interview process. It's different to your work. You have to prepare for the process. It's not a given. Uh, And it can't be a given in today's day and age. Now, I don't agree with HR panels that say, you can't probe questions uh, because your job is your job as an interviewer is to find the best person for the job. So if you think you need to probe some questions, you should probe some question within the rules. You know, ask the same first question. But if somebody takes you down a road in their interview process, well, why did you do that then? You know, uh, uh, and sometimes explain the the question differently. Phrase it differently because in the international world, the vast majority of people are either going to a French-speaking mission and French is their second language or an English-speaking mission and English is their second language. So let's be fair to them. Let's allow the opportunity for them to demonstrate it and ask the question differently. And make sure, for goodness sake, all of you listening out there, Make sure you understand about human rights, you understand gender, because if you're working for any of the international organisations, you've got to get that right, because if you don't, you ain't coming in. Simple as that.
Yeah, that's, that's pretty much, you know, there's always an introductory question and then there's a gender question. I mean, you can pretty much, there's two of your eight right there, right? So, <laughs> and so, and then, uh, th- th- you know, I, I have more questions, but we're, we're getting sort of close to our, our time limit here. But I, I think I completely agree with about don't being modest. Um, I mean, I think there's also a tipping point there, right? So don't be over the top, but I think acknowledge the successes you've had. And, and to take credit for the work that you've done. And and we have to be able to co- be comfortable with saying, I did this. It wasn't we as a team, we've sort of been ingrained with this idea of saying, we did this, we did that. And then the question is always, we who? Who are you talking about, you know? And it's really, it's it's that I did this, I did that. And, and so you need to be able to claim that sort of responsibility and the successes that you've had. And, but the, the last question I'll, I have is, is especially when people are sort of, you know, part of the people that listen to this podcast are really sort of entering into the career space. What do they do when they don't have or they don't feel like they have, you know, a lot of experience to be able to draw upon to answer these questions? What can they do to, you know, when you're in this scenario where they're saying, give me an example of this and, and you maybe not have as much or a depth of experience or examples to draw from? Well, let me give you an example. One of the places I was today, this morning, I was at the American University of Kosovo giving them um, a career chat, how to plan their career in an uncertain and squiggly world. Uh, there's a great book uh, called Squiggly Careers, um, uh, and there's a lot of information about how you how you plan for uncertainty, um, especially when 80% of our students are, are going to go into jobs in the next five to 10 years that haven't even been invented yet. You know, the, the pace of change, the velocity of change is going to, you know, with artificial, artificial intelligence, um, other other variables that are coming in, it's just going to just implode. And I, don't, I, don't, I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg at the moment. So a lot of change is, is coming, uh, whether we like it or not, it is. So um, be prepared for that. And I think the... One of the things I said to a group of the the students that and they said, "Well, how can we? I, I'm going for a job that that involves planning. How can how can I articulate that?" And I said, "Well, okay, your dissertation. Were you not given a task? Yes. Was there an end result to that task? Yes. Was there a grading structure? Yes. So the grading structure was the quality control of that task. Well, yes." Did you have to submit part papers to your professors for reading back? Yes. So there were milestones in your reports? Well, yes. So you set milestones, you had some setbacks, you had to deal with those setbacks, but you had to deliver it in time. And if you couldn't deliver it in time, you had to ask for further time. And then you had to then submit it. And if it was within the quality framework and within timelines, you got a grade that you were satisfied with. Yes. Well, that's project management. And it's about translating what you've done into the language of the organization. It's as simple as that. Because what they want to know is, do you have a skill set? And do you know what that skill set is? So the more you know about you, and the more you know about what you've done, and again, it's this positive mental attitude as well. Don't look for, I haven't been able to do that. I can't. I can't evidence that. How can you evidence that? And if you haven't been able to evidence that, how could you evidence that by doing an internship, some voluntary work or something else? So look at, don't look at I can't, look at 
how could I or how can I? So what have I done that's similar to it that I could package up as evidence of it? And if I've done nothing, absolutely nothing, then there's a gap. How do I plug that gap? And look to be progressive, not that binary internal critic that says, oh, you can't, so don't go for it. So go and stack shelves somewhere. That would be my advice. Be really positive, be progressive, be confident. And yes, sometimes you've got gaps. And if you've got those gaps, find out how to plug them, even if it's doing voluntary stuff. Yeah, I definitely agree. It echoes a lot of what we talk about as well, which is generally you can find the experience. And if you can't find the experience, you can create the experience. And so um, we don't need to. And one of my favorite phrases is sort of that I coined was you don't need permission to have experience. Right. So go go ahead and get it. And then to be able to uh, build out your dossier and your portfolio. Martin, this is really, really helpful. Um, and I'm glad that you're here to join us today and share your insights and information. If somebody wants to get in contact with you, how can we find you? Well, uh, I've got a LinkedIn page. Uh, Competency-based coaching uh, is, the inter- is the LinkedIn page. Uh, I also put a lot of my stuff on uh, YouTube. So I've got a YouTube channel. So they can DM me on uh, LinkedIn. Um, they can contact me through through the website uh, the, sorry, the YouTube channel. I'm developing a website now called competencybasedcoaching.com. They could look on there uh, for some stuff that's coming up, but that is in that is in sort of progress at the moment and it's not completed because uh, I'm moving away from competency-based interviews to competency-based coaching because it's more of a holistic approach to the whole process. Mm-hmm. Oh, very interesting. Great. So if anybody wants to get in touch with Martin, please reach out to him on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to start. And we will include your YouTube channel and your videos then in our show notes so people can take a look at that as well. And I highly encourage everybody to to reach out, find out some more information and get some more insights and perspectives in the competency-based interviews. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. It's a subject I love talking about. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot.